seated. You can turn in your Bible to John 17. We'll look at the first five, five verses today. The text is also printed very strangely in the bulletin on the next page for you there. Uh, just talk about that in just a second. Um, John 17, here we are. It's the great high priestly prayer. It's the mystery of a man praying boldly, very boldly to God. Actually, it's the mystery of God praying as a man. Um, this is the prayer for the glory of God and for the consecration of the true temple. It's the triune life opened up before our eyes, so to speak, on the very page, so that we might be brought in to the triune life and united to the triune God, so that he might enter into us and make us alive with his own life. John 17, it's, it's crazy. Leslie Newbegin said that the, uh, the prayer leads us into the very heart of the ministry and message of Jesus, and no exposition can hope to do more than suggest some aspects of its meaning. Uh, that is to say, there's a lot being said here, more than we could possibly encompass in a few sermons. I've been looking forward to getting to this chapter actually for a couple of years now that we've been in John's Gospel, um, <clears throat> but with mixed feelings, excited to explore it, studying and studying and still unsure how to unpack all of this. Uh, it can seem really daunting. It seemed daunting to me this week, overwhelming. It uh, feels like it overloads your circuits. You're not sure where to begin, uh, how to get into it, not sure how to start piecing it all together, how to keep up with what's going on, but it w- would be too bad if this prayer that we're going to read, um, if this prayer had the effect of leaving you confused or bewildered. It would be too bad if that were the case. Because there's a lot being said here. There's a lot being said for us to hold on to, a lot to explore, a lot of real content being positively conveyed for a purpose, and that is to help you grow in your relationship with God. So we're going to break it up and take uh, it over a a couple of weeks as we look at this chapter. I promise I'm trying really hard to ease into it. It'll probably still feel like we're just being thrown into the deep end anyway. But if you can believe it, um, it'll be good for you. It'll it'll be good for all of us. So before we get into it, into the passage itself, let me just explain briefly what's printed there. Uh, The the prayer has a pretty deliberate literary structure to it. Uh, I've tried to bring that out with that visual arrangement. I'm not going to explain all the parts of that visual arrangement. Maybe you can go home and figure that stuff out on your own. I also did a little bit of my own translation, so some of those words aren't identical to the ESV. It's sort of the foundation of it is the ESV, but um, in some places it's more literal, or word order is, um, is uh, changed a little bit to be, to be more like the original text. It brings out more of the structure that you see here, perhaps confusingly. But um, So there you go. We're going to read the passage. Uh, let me pray first. <clears throat> Father, we pray for your help as we get into this. It's one of the deepest parts of your word. Your son speaking to you. Your son, your divine son, and yet your human son speaking to you on our behalf. Opening up your life to us. This is more than we can imagine. This is more than we can bear. It's more than we can ever take in, given all eternity. So we pray that you would help us and increase our capacity to take it in by your Holy Spirit. Change our hearts and our minds and renew us through this, your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you, just as you gave him authority over all flesh, so that to all whom you have given him, he may give to them eternal life. And this is the eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and the one whom you've sent, Jesus Christ. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me with yourself, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So we could just stop with the first part of the first verse, and uh, which says, when Jesus had spoken these words, talking about the upper room discourse, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, we could, we could stop there and actually spend a lifetime in wonder at the sheer reality of what's happening here, the sheer reality of who is lifting up his eyes to heaven and praying. In fact, you should do that. You should spend your lifetime in wonder at the sheer reality of who this is praying for you. I mean, that's kind of the point of the sermon, actually. You should spend your lifetime in wonder at the sheer reality of who this is praying. Jesus Christ, he's the Son of God, being of one substance with the Father. He's very God of very God, the true God, the eternal God, the only God, the whole God, Jesus Christ. In the flesh, having become also a creature, truly and perfectly human, praying to God the Father, the true God, the eternal God, the only God, the whole God. And in fact, uh, you're doing that. You're spending your lifetime in wonder at the sheer reality of who this is, is essentially the answer to Jesus' prayer. And it's the definition of eternal life itself that he's talking about. He says in verse 3, I didn't know where to start. We started in verse 3. This is eternal life, that they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So life, life as a concept throughout the scriptures, and especially eternal life, especially here as Jesus defines it, is not primarily defined by its length, by its quantity, by its duration, how long it lasts. That's not the essence of eternal life. That's not the real definition of eternal life, just that it, it never ends. Nor is it defined primarily in physiological, sort of cardiovascular terms, biological life. That's not the way the scripture really conceives of life and eternal life. Eternal life is not just your heart beating forever. True life, eternal life, in the scriptures is defined by its spiritual quality. Its its essence is knowing God relationally, through the Holy Spirit, spiritually. Death, you see it in contrast with death, death is being severed from God. It's that relationship ending. Life is being restored to relationship with God and enjoying that relationship. It's a capital L life, this eternal life, that begins in this lowercase l life, And it carries on in the life to come after death through resurrection into forever. It's a life that will last forever 
because of what it really is, because of its essence, because of the quality of it. It'll last forever, has that never-ending quantity because of its eternal quality, because of what it is. Because this life consists of being in a relationship with the living God, it is a life that will last as long as God lives. That's what Jesus meant when he proved the resurrection of the dead to people who didn't believe in the resurrection from, uh, from the dead. The, the Sadducees, they challenged him. And he proved the resurrection by saying that God, who is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, <clears throat> is, is the living God. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. It's because of who he is that the resurrection is true, that people will live forever with him in relationship with him. He's the living God, and those who trust him or are in relationship with him, they live. They really live, truly live, and that means also forever. But Jesus <clears throat> isn't focusing on the duration part here. He's not, he's not just talking about the, the duration, the length of eternal life here in this prayer. He's focusing on the nature of it, the nature, the essence, the quality, the spiritual quality of eternal life. He doesn't say that eternal life affords you the opportunity through limitless, infinite number of seconds and moments to contemplate God for a really long time. That's not what he's saying. He says that eternal life is knowing God. Eternal life consists of knowing God. Knowing God is what constitutes the eternal life Jesus came to, to bring us and to give us, the life that we may enter into even now. Basically, he's saying eternal life equals doing theology. You're supposed to laugh at that. <laughs> eternal life equals doing theology. In a sense, that is true. Before you dismiss it as a, an apparently bad joke or, uh, <clears throat> or as a dreadful prospect, doing theology forever, uh, before you dismiss it, let me just say we've all got some wonky notions of what theology is, what it means to do theology. And those wonky notions really complicate the matter for us. The word theology itself very basically just means studying God, knowing God. Speaking of God, having things to say about God, but knowing, knowing God, not just knowing about, right? It's not mere theoretical, speculative, intellectual, abstract knowledge about God. <clears throat> it's a true relational knowledge of God. It's knowing God. That's what theology is supposed to be. It's not a knowledge that we've arrived at through our own striving. <clears throat> if you think hard enough and put it all together, you can come up with a conception of what God is like that is pretty close to the reality. That's not what doing theology is. Theology and real knowledge of God is a knowledge of him as he really is because he's told us. He's revealed himself to us. We're totally at the mercy of his self-revelation in our ability to think about God and, and know him. <clears throat> his own life, his own life as the triune God is theological. We're going to hang out on this idea of doing theology for a few minutes. His life is theological. That is to say, the Father knows the Son, and the Son knows the Father. And that's God knowing God in and through God in the communion of the Holy Spirit. And again, that is not, it never could be, the idea 
of stuffy, dry, bookish knowledge. This is the dynamic, intimate, personal knowledge of the eternal trinity. This living God exists in the mutual knowledge of divine divine persons, and that's what his life is. That's what his life means, and it is infinitely glorious, never boring. Do you think theology is boring? Do you think theology is irrelevant to real life, to your life? One thing that you might choose to do with your life, among many other things, if you were geared differently, maybe, and if there weren't a million other more interesting things to be about. Is that theology? Is that thinking about God? Is, that, is it boring? Let me put the question another way. Do you think God himself is boring? Let me put that question yet another way. Do you think God is bored with himself? Do you think that the persons of God are bored with knowing each other? The Father and the Son, ugh, this is so last eternity. Do you think that's why God created the universe, to have something else to think about because he was bored with theology? No. As interesting as the universe that he created is, all the particles and all the places, all the supernovas and all the sand made of the seashells, the laws of physics, the studies of chemistry and biology, the birds who fly through gases, the monsters in the depths of the oceans, the heavens and the earth, and all that is in them. As interesting as the whole cosmos is, all of it together is not as interesting as the one true God who made it. Everything he made just affords us an opportunity to know him, to enjoy him. And everything that he has made should never be used to distract ourselves from knowing him. We should grow bored of each and every and all of the things that he has made. All the pursuit of them, all the sciences, we should grow bored with that eons before we ever grow bored with really doing theology, really knowing God, growing bored with God. Let me give you an illustration here. Um, Let's say your husband, which implies that you're a wife, which is just for the sake of illustration. Let's, let's say that's the case for you. Let's say your husband is the architect who designed the Louvre. Probably most of you have heard of the Louvre. It's, the, it's probably the most famous museum in the world in Paris. <clears throat> Not only is he the architect, he's the head curator of all the artwork. This is an imaginary job. Somebody's not doing all these things. And not only that, he has his own art exhibit, which is centrally featured in the Louvre. Now imagine visiting the Louvre, taking a few days to do it properly, as you should. Imagine doing that without giving a single thought to your spouse, who is behind everything that you're seeing, behind the environment and all the artwork. Imagine not giving a single thought to him, the one whose imagination brought together all that splendor. Imagine not giving a single thought to him, even though it's his voice in the guided tour headset, And even though he's walking with you, intently watching your responses to everything. Imagine knowing that 
He is incredibly also the city planner for Paris. And he has ideas for more museums and theaters and concert halls and artwork of his own to fill the whole city. Yet you never care to learn from him what makes him who he is, how he could possibly be so creative and so energetic, why he would do the great works that he does, because you know what, thinking about him is just kind of boring when there's all this cool stuff. What a strange thing for you to think since he's your husband. That isn't a problem with him actually being boring. That's a problem with your lack of love, your lack of interest, your lack of appreciation. Uh, have you ever seen any of those Dos Equis commercials? Quoting from beer commercials. Um, the, the most interesting man in the world. <clears throat> I think it's pretty fun. <laughs> you got the narrator saying in a really deep voice all this cool stuff about a guy. Totally fictional. Years ago, he built a city out of blocks. Today, over 600,000 people live and work there. <laughs> Uh, his beard alone has experienced more than a lesser man's entire body. Even his enemies list him as their emergency contact number. <laughs> People hang on his every word, even the prepositions. He can speak French in Russian. <laughs> I love that. <clears throat> All things that exist, visible or invisible, came from the mind of God. He had all those ideas in the beginning because of who he is. It says in Isaiah 42, actually says several times in Isaiah's prophecy, something like, he created the heavens and stretched them out like a tent, and he spread out the earth and what comes from it. It's like a picture of the tabernacle. It's like a picture of a tent where God dwells with his people. The whole cosmos is meant to be a tent, a meeting place for God and people. <clears throat> he created the heavens. He spread out the earth. He gives breath and life and spirit to the people he has made in order that he might give himself to them for mutual knowing. He invented French and Russian. He invented the idea of language itself. It comes from who he is. He's the word. The word is God, the God who speaks. He imagined up the idea of people speaking languages so that they could know each other. That idea came from who he is because he is persons in relationship. People do hang on his every word, even the prepositions. Does knowing him seem boring to you? J.I. Packer is a name familiar to most evangelical Christians. He wrote a book you've probably heard of. Maybe you've even read it, Knowing God. says right on the cover, over a million copies sold or a hundred million copies sold. I don't know what it says. <clears throat> a lot of people uh, have read that book. Um, he asked this question, what's the best thing in life? Bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else. Knowledge of God. Jesus says that eternal life is knowing God. 
That's what eternal life is. Knowing the Father to whom he is praying, the one true God, apart from whom there is no other God, and knowing the one sent by the Father, distinct from the Father, yet not another God, distinct from the Father, yet one with the Father in being and power and glory, his Son, Jesus Christ. Knowing this triune God. Jesus is saying that knowing God relationally, as John read in our um, Old Testament reading, Hosea chapter 2, God says, I'm going to betroth you to me. I'm going to marry you in, in justice and righteousness and faithfulness, and you'll know me. Biblical knowing. It's the intimate marital knowledge. And God has come to us for that. He says, Jesus says, knowing God relationally as the Holy Trinity in union with God is what life is all about. It's the very definition, and it is glorious. Jesus talks a lot about glory. In these verses, in fact, you could say the whole prayer is a prayer about glory. So let's do a little theology. Given what Jesus says, Jesus is God's eternal son, incarnate. He has his divine being from all eternity, and at a moment in time, not before, but at a moment in time, 2,000 years ago-ish, he entered his creation, he added a created nature to himself, and became also a human being, Jesus Christ. Before this, indeed before the world existed, he says, before there was anything else created, he shared the Father's glory in his presence. In the scriptures, glory is much more than a perception of fame. Glory certainly isn't something that God lacked before he created the world, as if he had to make creatures in order to give him praise, and then he would finally have glory that he'd been missing all that eternity. Glory is something that God the Father and God the Son shared before there was anything to share but God himself. So Rodney Whitaker says that glory refers to the revelation of God in all his beauty of being and character. Glory is a manifestation of God himself. In the scriptures, glory means substance. Glory means being, not just in and of myself, but that substance and that being manifested and shared and given and communicated. So what is this eternal glory that Jesus is talking about, shared by the Father and the Son before the world existed? The better question is, who is this eternal glory that Jesus is talking about, shared by the Father and the Son before the world existed? Who is the glory of God? It's God. God the Holy Spirit. God sharing God with God. And the glory of this God, the God who shares God with God, this one God, this one true God, the glory of this triune God is God himself given. The Holy Spirit who is our communion with the eternal living God. And now, now with this prayer, God the Son is asking as a human being, not just as the divine Son, but as The incarnate Son, as a human being, Jesus Christ is asking to be glorified as a human being with the Father, with this same eternal glory that he had as the divine Son of God before the world existed. 
That's what he's asking for in our passage, to receive the eternal spirit, but not just as the divine son, not just as the divine son, but as the man, Jesus Christ, in the mutual glorification of the Father, taking humanity up into the Trinity, into the relationships. And later in this prayer, Jesus speaks not just of having that glory for himself, not just enjoying that close of a relationship with the Father in his presence, with this glory, with the Holy Spirit. He speaks of sharing that same glory with us, God sharing God with humanity. And in order to make that happen, Jesus' road would take him to the cross, take him to his own death. That's the hour that he's talking about. The hour has come. Let's make this happen. And then it would lead to resurrection and victory over death, and then it would lead to God's right hand, to God's own place of rule over everything that he's made, where the Father and the Son, Jesus, would send the Spirit to us so that we would enter into the mutual glorification of eternity, the eternal life, the divine life. Think of it. Maybe your eyes are glazing over. I don't know. We're finite. We can't handle this kind of stuff. God is infinite. That means he will always exceed our capacity to take him in and to understand and to, we could never comprehend, right? His, his infinite being is tripersonal. One of those persons, the Holy Spirit, is the definition of glory itself, and he's the definition of glory because of his unique relationship to the two other persons. All of it just boggling our minds. Do you think that knowing this infinite God who has given himself to you so that you may know him, the infinite given to the finite, could ever possibly be boring? Not boring. Eternal life is knowing this God. We've refused to know him throughout the history of the world, but he is the God for whom making himself known is his eternal being. Knowing and being known, that's who God is. And he will make himself known in spite of the fact that we didn't want to know him. And it'll be good for us. And he's done it. He's already done it. In 1 John, the apostle who records Jesus' prayer here, his uh, first letter, chapter 5, he brings up the same themes. He says, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. This is the relational knowledge, right? Knowing him as a person. We may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So through faith in Jesus Christ and by the empowering of the Holy Spirit, you're given the privilege of discovering what this means day by day, world without end. You're called to know him as an individual and to discover what the knowledge of God means for your entire life and for your eternity. I can't unpack it all for you. That's that's your discovery to make, in a sense, who God is and go deeper and deeper in that relationship, knowing him. You're called to know him not just by yourself as an individual, but along with your brothers and sisters in Christ. 
It's that they may know you, Jesus prays. You're called to know him, participating in our corporate relationship with God. The primary place we do that is worship, worship together, coming into a deeper knowledge of God together. God has spoken his word to you. You're more than welcome to abide in it all the time, to meditate on him and to enter into conversations with others who are also contemplating him and enjoying eternal life together. Read theological books. I know some of you do that already. Maybe some of you need to start doing that. Maybe for some of you it will mean a dedicated course of study like going to seminary. Children, you shouldn't rule out that idea. God is infinitely interesting. Maybe you'd want to spend your life studying him. It shouldn't surprise us if you did that you might be that interested in knowing God. Theology has been known historically as the queen of the sciences. Ask me about that in sermon discussion if you want to know why it's sort of lumped in with sciences. But it's been known as the queen of the sciences, the majestic head of the sciences, that is. So don't reduce it to just a bare intellectual pursuit a way to win arguments. Enter into it as one steps into the very life and light of God, the eternal God, the triune God. That's how we should be doing theology. Knowing God, the way Jesus speaks of it here, it'll mean a change of an unimaginable order. We don't understand all the changes that'll take place in our lives as we come into this kind of knowledge of God It'll mean a complete restructuring of all your priorities, at the very least, for the better, for love's sake. And that's Jesus' prayer for us. Spend your lifetime in wonder at the sheer reality of who this is praying, and join him in this prayer, enter into this prayer for yourselves and for others to know the living God, which means eternal life. And to quote Hosea, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do pray for your spirit to come and open up our hearts and our minds so that we could drink you in because you are, you're like a flood coming to us. And we, we want to be in a relationship with you characterized by the kind of knowledge that you set forth in your scriptures, you knowing us intimately and we knowing you. Even as we've been known, we look forward to the day when that will be true and we see you face to face. And we pray that we would have a taste of it now always throughout our days, day by day, through your Holy Spirit who lives in us, connecting us to you, helping us to understand your word, to receive it and to be changed by it because of our relationship with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.